This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Thursday, December 8th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Wall Street Journal had a front-page story on the exquisite, delicate, expensive Fabergé egg. CBS Sunday Morning once described the egg this way. Peter Carl Fabergé's jeweled masterpieces were designed for the Russian Tsars to give to their wives and mothers. Well, the harpsichord music was fancy, but wouldn't a report on Fabergé eggs be far fancier with an English accent? This first egg was made in 1885. It's a beautiful enamel. Inside that is a golden yolk. Inside that is a golden chicken. The golden chicken, three pieces plus biscuit for $9.99. And by the way, don't you think if Carl Fabergé's last name were Smirdly, these things would plunge in value? Oh, that has all the hallmarks of Smirdly craftsmanship, but my trained eye makes me doubt its authenticity as a bona fide Smirdly. The reason that these eggs, the Fabergés, not the Smirdleys, are in the news is that these items were once meant for czars and their moms, but they've now fallen into the hands of the new czars, the ignoble noblemen of Russia today, the oligarchs. And as part of the sanctions package against Russian oligarchs, we go after their assets. It is a process of peace through de-yotification. And as part of that, some Fabergé eggs have surfaced. Does a Fabergé egg float or sink? I forget. Perhaps, unsurprisingly, Fabergé eggs have long been associated with flagrant displays of wealth and evil, as James Bond found out when his nemesis, Kamal Khan, bid on one of these eggs. The next lot is number 48, a superb green gold imperial Easter egg by Carl Fabergé, enameled in translucent green, enclosed by gold laurel leaf trellis, set with blue sapphires and four-petaled gold flowers with diamonds. Of course, we know now that James Bond swapped the real egg for a fake one at the auction to trick Kamal Khan, who was working for a Russian general. Which brings us back to the real Fabergé eggs in the Wall Street Journal story, which found themselves or itself on the yacht of a Russian oligarch. Only, when I say the real Fabergé egg, that's the point of the story, experts doubt that they really are real Fabergé eggs. Quote, it could be a chocolate egg. It could be a paper mache egg. It could be ceramic. It could be made of wishful thinking. That was said by Kieran McCarthy, who curated a recent Fabergé exhibition in London. The Justice Department has task force klepto capture, and you know they're serious because there's no space between klepto and capture. No time for spaces. Task Force Klepto Capture has not released photographs of the supposed Fabergé. But I say this, rest assured these hard-boiled investigators will scramble to track down whatever luxury goods have been poached by oligarchs. They have the skill it takes to investigate shell companies lest any lawbreaker think that it will all be over easy. In point of fact, he might just fry. On the show today, 
tales of Russian nefariousness don't end with the eggs or fake eggs. We talk a boot boot, Victor Boot, and the swap for Brittany Griner. But first, tech companies and technologies boomed during the pandemic as we all sheltered in our homes and embraced or were at least forced to interact over Zoom. But the pandemic's behind us. So we have to ask, is it time for tech to loosen its grip on our lives? Up next, David Sachs, author of The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World, thinks he might have the answer. We'll talk to David Sachs right after this. So we learned some lessons from the pandemic, took away some lessons, some scars, but I wonder if we learned our lessons correctly, because it did seem that during the pandemic, the mass consensus was, man, I never want to do another Zoom meeting again. And then when the pandemic ebbed and the call was to come back to the office, so many people said, I never want to go back to the office. So I don't get it. Wasn't the hell of the pandemic enough evidence to convince you that you need a little bit of human interaction? What Amanda Ripley calls the daily inoculation of chit-chat in the break room or sharing a cupcake for Gladys's birthday? This is among the topics of David Sachs's new book, The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. David, welcome to The Gist. Mike, thanks for having me. <laughs> yes, and we should say you're not the David Sachs who invests in Twitter. You're the David Sachs with an X who is pretty suspicious of Twitter. I'm the say. David Sachs that craps on Twitter. Um, I'm still on there, though. <laughs> Wait till we get to meta in the metaverse. Ooh, oh, my God. Mm, and, and I hope Shmuley Bankman-Fried makes it into this, too. <laughs> so I'm right that we all hated Zoom, and yet people were not eager to get back to the office. Do you think this was a failure to really analyze what was going on and what they hated about Zoom? Or do you think that, and I have some theories on this, that it wasn't cognition, but it was that there are some positive aspects to not being in the office that people aren't taking into account? Yeah, I think when we look at sort of the contrast between the analog world and the digital one, right? Uh, and, And that's really what this book's about. It's about this kind of plunge that we had into the world of entirely digital experiences in the early days of the pandemic and what we sort of learned from that or didn't um, and what that taught us about the greater need in the world. I think work is the most complicated because for something like school, people are like, this is terrible. You know, the statistics are coming in, but like I can see my kids are miserable. I'm miserable. My university students, you know, that I teach are miserable. I as a teacher am miserable. Nope, this is not the future. Like we're all getting back to the classroom. And I think everywhere mm-hmm. has pretty much been agreement on that. Work was complicated, right? Because people are like, yeah, I guess there was something about that meeting, but uh, it's an hour and a half drive to the office and I don't want to have to wear my slacks. Um, and I like working at home now and it's, it's really convenient or it's like faster to do this or, hey, we're saving saving hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on leases, like, great. And people are still kind of miserable doing meetings all day, but it's, it's this messy mix. It's an experiment, right, that we're going through now. And I think what the world of business loves 
is this answer. Like I did my first book event last night here in Washington, D.C. with Cal Newport. You know, the, the, he brought the business, the crowd to it. And they're like, what's the future of work? What, what, how many days are we going to go in? What, what's the future? We got to know. We got to know. We need certainty. We need to know. We need to know how much leasing space to get. We need to know how many desks to buy. Yes. And it's this uncertain thing because there are these tremendous advantages to going remote. And there's these tremendous disadvantages. And studies are coming out now, which is showing the longer term attrition of creativity and communication at big organizations like Microsoft, which went mostly remote. And it's like, hey, it's working to a point, but you're losing something. And you're actually losing those deeper connections and things that are harder to see from the outset. So it's going to take a decade for individuals and organizations to figure that out. Yeah, that is my Uh, That is my thought about working. It's not that anyone says, well, the work is actually better. It's just that the trade-offs, the pluses beat the minuses for the non-work stuff. And yeah, commuting is a huge problem. And maybe there is in the remote work idea, a solution to the unbelievably high cost of housing in some of our cities like New York, Toronto, and San Francisco. So I'd buy that. Yeah, I think so. But again, we're looking at this, you know, that's that's that sort of utopian ideal that the digital world that Silicon Valley always says is like, hey, you're going to go remote. You're not going to have to pay for offices. It's going to be great. And you can live anywhere. So housing prices will come down in San Francisco. We're not going to have to do difficult things like look at the tax base and how we shift that and how we do urban planning in North America, which is entirely built on the idea that like you're going to live out here and then you're going to drive your car into here and who cares if it takes you two hours because that's the way it's it's built so we want these easy solutions and digital is like yeah if you just adopt zoom it's great and you know everyone can live wherever they want it's all going to sort of work out and as we're seeing now almost three years into the moment when a bat pooped on a pangolin in china and kicked this whole fun party off <laughs> that's your theory that's the current theory that's it lab leak <laughs> you my ain't ass. confirmed <laughs> lab leak my ass it was a bat pooping on a pangolin or something even more sexual um uh-huh. um you know it, it's it's not that simple so there are limits uh, obviously the author of the future is analog is going to critique uh the digital reality of the present and there are limits to that but i wonder how much there has to be some part of it that the actual technology zoom maybe seems like a fair approximation of conversation but it's really not like you can't really interrupt and you can't pick up well you write a little bit about just the knowledge of uh, body language and subtle uh, cues that take place away from the face. But it's not as if this can't be perfected. I specifically think about the talking each, uh, over each other problem. That's There's a technical fix to that. So how much of it, yeah, I'm sure you're going to say that it will never get totally there. But how much can be improved with technology, do you think? I think technology has continued to improve since digital computers you know were created i don't know 60 70 years ago um since the personal computer was created you know 45 years ago since like things keep improving and and, and this is a certainty right so there's two certainties for the future right one is that digital technology will continue improving continue innovating new technologies things that we don't even know about we can't even imagine are going to be coming down the line and we'll have continual improvements in podcasting technology and 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 you know virtual shopping and whatever conversational tools there are and the other truth is that as good as that stuff gets we are still analog creatures we mm-hmm. are flesh and blood animals living on this 
ecosystem on this giant spinning rock. Now we're trying to kill the ecosystem. We're doing a great job with it. Um, but as long as that remains true and, you know, you can believe in this transhumanist idea that we're going to upload our brains to the cloud and live on forever in sort of some singularity. But if you don't, if you're like the most of us who don't believe in that, you know, we're still going to get the most out of the world when we interact with it in the way that our bodies have evolved to do over hundreds of thousands of years. So we could have the best video conferencing software with the best graphics, and it could it could really emulate that feeling of being there. But being there is still the goods, right? Yeah. I think of the information that I got for some of the other books I wrote. And so much of it was being there, being on a farm, being in a record pressing plant in Nashville, being in an abandoned film factory in Italy, being at Katz's Deli in New York and, and being there at the interview and, and interviewing, you know, uh, Fred Austin, the owner. And he's, I'm like, well, what's it like to work behind the counter? And he's like, well, show up at Saturday at four o'clock and I'll put you behind the counter. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. And I spent a night cutting hundreds of sandwiches. <laughs> I'm sorry to all the people who ate them at Katz's, right? That's that the quality of that information. Yeah. Could I have phoned on the interview and done, or maybe a camera would have been there at Katz's and I would get a sense of it. Sure. I could get a sense of it. I could do, I could do a phone in job, but that's the other thing too, is like, we could do it, but do you want to do it? Do you want to phone in life? How much of your life do you want to phone in? Yeah. It does seem to me that digital one and zero communication is a little bit the enemy of creativity. And it's because a couple things about creativity, it's about veering in directions you didn't know you were going. So when you're talking uh, about of the one and zeros uh, via the one and zeros of a digital communication, it's hard to veer off course, not impossible. You know, we could have a conversation that takes us in interesting places. I do it all the time on Riverside, but harder. But also creativity is additive and there's something about communicating in the digital realm that you are literally confined. And so it's harder to add things to that. It's harder to add the thing that you didn't even think of to the agenda of the meeting or the meta agenda that is implied in every bit of uh, digital communication. Yeah. The limitations are what allow for it to be fast and powerful and, mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> you know, highly efficient right? And optimized. Um, but optimization efficiency is the enemy of creativity. And we can talk about it in creativity for work, creativity for new ideas for a product or service your company's on. We can talk about it in creativity for education and the way kids learn. I mean, the relational aspect of learning is the most important part, right? There's a wonderful gentleman I interviewed, Larry Cuban. He um, teaches about education technology at Stanford. He's been doing it for many years. And he said, look, this is what tech gets wrong about education. This is what people generally get wrong about education, especially in America. They believe education is the information. It's the facts and figures that are on the test. Education is not. That's just information. Education is a relationship, a relationship that happens between teachers and students, between students and each other, between students and their parents, between students and the community. And that allows them to care about the information. That's what gives them the environment for learning. Think about a college campus. That's all that is. It's a fully built environment around relationships that allow people to care about this information. When you think back to your college days, um, do you remember a specific thing you learned 
Like a, can I, can you recall like a fact you learned in a course? Probably a fact, but Probably it pales in comparison to the hundreds of experiences I had. Right. The many hacky sacks, the, you know, whatever. The, the hundred viewings of the Big Lebowski I did at my friend's house. Um, and that, <laughs> that, all of that allowed me to actually care about the school and, and, and process the information that was in it. So we're looking really at the surface, right? Digital is great at delivering information and it, and it works in that way. And, and that's why we love it to get info about where am I going? Where should I eat? What's happening in the news? No, 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 no. But when we want to go deeper, it's just insufficient. Yeah. So the part of your book that's about culture and how the future maybe being analog, I thought wasn't quite as strong, to be frank, as some of the other parts, which were slam dunks. And I think it's because we've mostly been experiencing culture via non-analog ways by choice and to the delight of most consumers for decades and decades. And you're right, you know, Hamilton actually seeing it on Broadway is a lot better than the Disney Plus version that I saw, but that's because Hamilton was designed to be a live show. And so when you do a pale approximation of it, yeah, that director found a good way to shoot that show. But, you know, we were talking about The Office. I saw The Office live show. It was a funny little quirky take on The Office, but when things are designed to be, to come to us uh, via TV or via movies, um, they work. We've, you know, pretty much perfected that when they were designed to be live, they work in that context. And I think with the pandemic enforcing the analog into the digital, that created some friction, but that's not the normal way of the world. And I don't think people are looking at the future as they may have been with education or definitely with work. This is going to change everything and prescribing, oh, let's give up the analog for the digital. No, no, I don't think so. There's still a deeper sort of magic and a deeper experience of being there. So I had my first book event last night in six years. My last book I launched in the middle of the pandemic. And I don't know, there was like 40 people at this bookstore in DC, maybe 50. And it always amazes me that people come out to a book talk. I'm like, just buy the book. The ideas are all in there. I'm just gonna like- <laughs> Don't give that away. Buy don't the book, tell them that listen to Mike's podcast, <laughs> you know. But it's amazing. And I said like, I, I talked to them like, why are they here? And they're like, I just hadn't been to a book event in so long. I love hearing people talk about ideas, right? Now you can listen to a thousand podcasts where people talk about ideas. Um, you know, the real the real deal is still is still the thing. Why are there podcast festivals? Like I've been to podcast festivals where there are thousands of people in the audience listening to the same schmoes that they can play on their earbuds wherever they want. So what is what is that essential attraction? to the real thing, right? It, it is a kind of magic. It's like this, can't put my finger on it, but um, I want to be there. Yeah, I do think a lot of the book, there is a, what we call a magic or something ineffable. And it shows up time and time again, like talking about the smell of the cafeteria in the, in the school, in these uh, sense memories, or maybe parts of the senses that can't be captured by the ones and zeros. And that's fine. And there's probably something to that. But I do think that we're going to define that which we thought was ineffable. We're going to make it effable. We're going to define it. Smell-o-vision? Well, no, what I mean is that what I mean is that we say, just like your uh, expert on architecture, who kind of put into 
a more understandable frame what it exactly was that we're missing. Like we say with books, you know, there's the feel of it. And I know we could read it on a Kindle, but there's the turning of the pages. And maybe we have some nostalgia for the sensuality of it. But you know what? I I know there are researchers who are actually telling you how the word on the page is hitting your brain as opposed to the word heard through the ear. And as we do more and more of that, we're going to understand what really was in a quantifiable way, the trade-off from digital to analog. Yeah. And I think it's a very sort of digital approach. As these things come up, how can we critically think about this each new technology or each new sort of promise in the future and go back to that gut check of like, okay, well, what are the things that are important to me as an individual or as a community or as an organization? And where does the technology serve that and make it better? And where does the human analog experience, the sensorial experience actually provide the best example or the best alternative or the best practice of that. Maybe you can quantify it, but maybe we have to acknowledge that there's certain things that you can't quantify. You can't quantify why a concert is better. So in my previous book, The Revenge of Analog, I talk a lot about the revival of vinyl records, right? Why did it happen? Is it for the sonic quality? No, it's for the quality of the experience. It's why people buy vintage cars. It's why people love old school bikes. And it's not quantifiable. Though as you say that, I have a theory as to how to quantify it, which is, and this was shot through your culture uh, chapter, we've gone from a society where the, a society of scarcity all the way to a society of overabundance, right? And maybe we hit this sweet spot at some point, but we went from having too little to wanting enough to almost immediately having too much. And scarcity, I think this is kind of what you're talking about. When you pull the album out of the sleeve and handle it and look at it, what's going on in your head is that I'm handling it, I'm looking at it, I'm touching it, I'm having all these experiences with it. But you're also forcing yourself into scarcity. It slows down the mind, it slows down the process. You listen to this one album, you can't skip around on the tracks. And that forces you to concentrate, to enjoy it, to not have the FOMO of something else you could listen to. It's why the NFL or the CFL, the NFL is the most popular (laughs) sport. Because it's so brutal, there's a scarcity of the number of games they can play, where Whereas baseball and the NBA just keep piling on games and they're less special. So I think that that is a non, I don't know exactly what the golden ratio for scarcity is, but I do think that's one of the things that's happening. And I do think that the digital world is the enemy of scarcity. Yeah, because it promises us endlessness, right? It's infinite. There's there's no limits to it. And, and in many ways, it's designed not to have limits. The more we use it, the the better business it is, the higher the stock price goes up for those companies. Um, and so scarcity is sort of the enemy of digital, but it's necessary. We need limits. We have bodies. The world only has 24 hours in a day. It still spins at the same rate. Limits are natural. Limits are healthy. Limits are good. Limits lead to creativity. They lead to good ideas. Um, and I think if we can go into the future acknowledging that, acknowledging what our limits are, acknowledging where we want to celebrate and lean into those. And then in the other areas, yeah, send an email, do a Zoom meeting. Maybe this isn't worth driving into the office for. Um, uh, I think we'll, we'll have a better, healthier future than the one we were sort of building. 
Well, we, David Sachs, have reached the limit to our conversation, the time allotted, which is a sad thing, but as you note, also a joyous thing. David Sachs is the author of The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. It was a prisoner swap a long time coming, as President Biden announced today from the White House that detained WNBA superstar Brittany Griner was coming home. Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and, uh, and she should have been there all along. This is a day we've worked toward for a long time. We never stopped pushing for her release. It took painstaking and intense negotiations, and I want to... Those intense negotiations were over who else would be incoming to America. Not, the answer is not Paul Whelan, though the president vowed to work on his return, too. So as far as who the U.S. would give back to Russia, well, it was the figure said to be on the trading block since soon after Griner was arrested. Victor Boot, the merchant of death, a notorious arms dealer who most likely possesses some secrets of the Russian state, secrets that never left his lips in U.S. detention. Some say the trade wasn't worth it. Exchanging legitimately detained criminals, Boot, for illegitimately detained ones, Griner, incentivizes the taking of, essentially, hostages. That is true, it does. But we have to realize there are many cross-pressures here. Putin has now served notice to every prominent American, every prominent Westerner, really, that they're not safe in Russia. Not that in a time of war it was really practical to visit Russia. But again, this action destroyed the top destination, not just for Griner, but the top destination for women basketball players throughout the world. There are sanctions disallowing such employment today. There are moral concerns that would probably get in the way of a WNBA superstar taking a paycheck from the Russians. But you know who liked employing top flight women basketball players? The oligarchs, the men who owned the top women's teams. So it's not as if Putin was acting in a cost-free manner. He took away the plaything of some of his most important backers. Arresting and detaining Griner marks Russia as even more of a pariah state than it was before the war. I don't know how Russia goes back. If the war is settled, and if there is no nuclear component to it, it will take years and years for Russia to ever be in a place where a moneyed American would easily opt to travel there or do business there, and that is not good for Russia. Whatever measure of national pride will be revived by bringing back the merchant of death, that has to be counteracted by all the deaths visited upon soldiers and conscripts forced to fight this war. I don't think it comes close to evening out. Then there is the timing of this exchange, which I've thought about. It took place after the midterms. I don't think it's a coincidence. I would guess Putin, no idiot about U.S. domestic politics, didn't want to hand Biden and the Democrats something close to a win before voting took place. I personally do not buy the idea that Republican control of the House means very tough times for bipartisan war funding. But, you know, right now, the Russians have more of a sliver of hope that the spigot runs dry than they ever did when Nancy Pelosi led the House. 
Oil prices, by the way, are down. How does that factor in? Well, much of Biden and the EU's idea of a price cap at $60, that just isn't in play now. I've seen it described as mostly symbolic. I don't understand. Symbolic of what? I don't get the symbolism. I would say that a $60 price cap when Russia's Urals blend crude is now selling at $55.97, I would just say it's beside the point. You know, a U.S. gallon of gas costs less today than it did in January. Things are looking up for the Americans, looking down for the Russians in terms of everything except the ability to make some money on the trade of now devalued oil and gas. But if this price cap didn't exist, the world would look a lot like it does now. And the same would be true for the outlook of the Russian and global economy in the near future. How did this play into the swap? Well, I think before the swap took place, there might have been a lot of considerations. But one was that Putin was maybe looking to see what the effects of the cap or oil prices or other macro trends might be. And now he has said, this is as good a time as any to get our boy boot back. And I wouldn't worry that much about the merchant of death sharing actionable intelligence. I wouldn't even worry about him getting back into the arms trading game. Right now, Russian munitions and stockpiles are greatly degraded. They're not exactly down to throwing rocks and launching balsa wood gliders, but unless Boot has a really good in with Iranian drone manufacturers, I guess he's done the worst that can be expected on the battlefield. In sports, a good trade means that both teams address their needs and get stronger. In diplomacy, however, a fair prisoner exchange doesn't have those hallmarks. Like a lot of diplomacy, this swap is a demonstration of each side's values. The Russians will persecute the innocent to show loyalty to their henchmen. We as Americans, I think quite admirably, didn't let our desire to punish enemies stop us from saving our own people. And therefore, I say this is a good day for Brittany Griner and a good day for American values. And that's it for today's show. The assistant producer of The Gist, Cory Wara, knows of Fabergé eggs. But Cory Wara, fun fact, never had an egg until college. Joel Patterson is senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca, COO of Peachfish Productions. Didn't love all the puns, but very much appreciates, even if she doesn't know it, that I didn't do a yokes on you type reference. It's beneath me. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And thanks for listening. Oh, Bond, sir. Sign a chit for that egg before you leave the building. It's government property now. Of course, sir.